Good evening. Can everybody hear me? Good evening. It is wonderful to be here, and I do need to ask you to forgive this voice. It is a beautiful fall day, but it, my allergies in the fall don't always mix. <clears throat> Part of the Academy's mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Tonight, we're going to talk about a characteristic that is essential for discipleship. It won't surprise any of you to learn that all disciples need to trust God. But see, trusting God is more than a declaration. It requires that we make certain decisions and then we act accordingly. I chose this topic because this week we read about two of the patriarchs, Jacob and Joseph, and each modeled trusting God in action. So let's look at Jacob first. Let's look at a little bit of background, which you read this week. Jacob and his mother, Rebekah, have deceived Isaac in order to steal Esau, the older brother's blessing. They succeed. Esau is angry to the point of wanting to kill Jacob. So Jacob flees to a distant land where his relatives are in hopes of finding safety and a wife. Now here's what he says in Genesis 28. He makes this vow, and listen to the vow. If God will be with me and protect me, on this journey and give me food and clothing, and if he will bring me back safely to my father, then I will make the Lord my God. Certainly very conditional, isn't it? That's where he's at right now, okay? Years have passed and Jacob struggles with the Lord, but he has overcome his struggles because in Genesis 32, here's what we see. Your name will no longer be Jacob. It is now Israel because you have struggled both with God and men and you have won. So our story continues. We also read Genesis 35. Here's what God says to Jacob. He's on his way back now. Get ready and move to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled your brother Esau. So here's how Jacob, Jacob responds. He says to his household, we're going to Bethel, where I will build an altar to the God who answered my prayers when I was in distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So it looks like God has met the conditions for Jacob. So Jacob has finally made the decision, I'm going to trust God. How does that work out in action? When he tells his household, get rid of all the pagan idols. And they do. They give Jacob all the pagan idols, and he buries them under the great tree near Shechem. What is the first step in actively trusting God? We need to get rid of our, of our idols. I believe idolatry is the chief sin in scripture. Let's think about this. God has shown himself to be a relational God. In our story, he reveals his desire and his motivation throughout. God wants a people who want him. And idolatry, it's the relational sin. It is spiritual adultery. Now listen to what Moses is saying to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 4. So be careful not to break the covenant the Lord your God has made with you. Now, you know who these people are in Deuteronomy 4? They're the offspring of the generation that built the calf. That's who these people are. They're the offspring. You will break it if you make idols of any shape or form. For the Lord your God has absolutely forbidden this. 
The Lord your God is a devouring fire and a jealous God. He is jealous for us, his people, because we are his treasured possession. And listen to the imagery used for the church in the New Testament. In Revelation 19, we read, For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. In choosing idolatry, the bride chooses to be unfaithful. But it's not so simple just to say, I'm done with the idols. We need to be on guard because idols can and do entice us. In our humanity, we are vulnerable to both deceit and seduction. And the idols do both very well. They deceive us and they seduce us. Now, I know it's early on, but I want to do our table discussion now. And here's why. When I think of the Old Testament idols, I picture odd and creepy little statues. I don't think anybody has a problem with rejecting that. So I want you to talk about at your table. What do you think idolatry looks like in our contemporary context? Because it's here. And on the post-it notes, not only what, but who are our contemporary idols? So let's take about seven or eight minutes to decide what we think that looks like. Thank you. Yes, I should tell them that. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. One last thing. When you, who, would somebody from the table pl please bring up the post-it notes so we can see who the idols are? Thank you. I have to tell you, I, I honestly had no idea that we would get this kind of yield. I am amazed at this. Wow. So let's take a look at the idols that we're talking about. Let's take a look at our, our odd, creepy little statues. Work, sports, success, technology, money, social media, kids, softball, car, church, religion, body images, independence, wow, celebrities, freedom, iPhones, addiction. Well, these are excellent. So that's what our idols look like today. So we're going to talk about what are the consequences of following these guys. The first one, idols derail us from our true identity and destiny. Romans 8.29 tells us, God knew us. He knew his people in advance, and he chose us to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And that's you. But scripture tells us, if we worship idols, we're going to look just like them, not Christ. Now, one technique scripture uses for emphasis is repetition. It doesn't have color post-it notes or fonts or graphics. So when you see repetition in scripture, pay attention. God wants us to know something. Twice in the Psalms, we are expl explicitly told about the idols, almost word for word. First in 135, actually first in 115, then 135. Here's what the psalmist says. The idols are merely things of silver and gold shaped by human hands. Then he goes on to tell us what they can't do. They have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, 
mouths but cannot speak, and on and on. And here's his conclusion. And those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. Here, this is the concept, but here's the example in Scripture. We have mentioned the golden calf before in this class. The account is in Exodus 32. This is what the Lord is saying to Moses. Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to, watch this, turn away from what I commanded and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. So think about what this idol looks like, this calf. It's metal. It is hard. It is rigid. It is immovable. And it's inflexible. And the Lord continues, I've seen these people. And guess what he calls them? A stiff-necked people. Just like the idol they made. They have turned away from the Lord, but they're unable now to turn back and repent. And unfortunately, they remain stiff-necked, obstinate, and hard-hearted. These are the people who witnessed the plagues, leaving Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, and yet they never trust in God's ability to bring them into the promised land. And most of these people are going to die in the promised land, die in the desert, and never get to the promised land because idols derail us from our true destiny. Number two, the idols are futile. Idols can only be as powerful as their makers. So who finds that comforting? Anybody? You know what I've learned? It's nice being God until I need him. And yet in spite of the limitations over here or in this flip chart, you know what we do? We serve them with our time, our talent, and our treasure. Now in Isaiah 44, it is the Lord speaking again. And this time he's telling his assessment of idols and idol makers straight from the Lord. In the example here, it is a woodcarver who has just cut down a tree. Listen to what God says. He uses part of the wood to make a fire to warm himself and then bake his bread. Makes sense. Then yes, it's true. He uses the rest of it and makes himself a god for people to worship. He makes an idol and bows down and praises it. And God will repeat this again. He burns part of the tree to roast his meat and to keep himself warm. Then he takes what's left and makes his god, his carved idol. He falls down in front of it worshiping it and praying to it, saying, rescue me, rescue me, you are my God. Still God's words, such stupidity and ignorance. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect, how can the rest of it be a God? Should I bow down to worship a chunk of wood? Christopher Wright is a theologian, and in his book, Here Are Your Gods, here's what he says. It seems we never learn that false gods never fail to fail. The only thing about a false god we can depend upon, it's going to let us down in the end. So are you familiar with this expression? In this world, there are two things we can count on. Physical death and taxes. I say tonight we've just added a third. Physical death, taxes, and the idols will never fail to fail us. The third thing the idols will do, the consequences. Idols overturn God's good created order. Now, this is interesting. Watch this. Moses wrote most of the Pentateuch, right? The first five books of the Bible. Another technique that Scripture uses 
to make a point is structure. And watch how Moses structures this. In the Genesis creation account, he writes, God created the spaces, right? The sky, the sea, and the land. And then he fills them in this order. Sun, moon, and stars, fish and birds, animals and humans. And God declares this as either good or very good. But back to Deuteronomy 4, right? Moses is warning this younger generation, don't do what your parents did. That's what he's telling them. And he says, so do not corrupt yourselves by making an idol in any form, whether humans and animals, birds and fish, sun, moon, and stars. Don't be seduced into worshiping them. When warning about idolatry, Moses inverts God's good creation because this is what idolatry does. Now here again, we're looking at the concept. You know where we see this lived out among believers? In Romans 1. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever living God, they worshiped idols made to look like people, birds, and animals. So God abandoned them to whatever shameful things their hearts desired. Now think about this. When God abandons them, he's simply respecting their choice. After all, there's no greater respecter of our free will than the one who gave it to us. We choose whom we will worship. So actually, I say the idol worshipers were the first ones to abandon their relationship. And Christopher Wright says this, when people worship creation instead of the creator, everything is turned upside down, not just our relationship with God, Idolatry produces disorder in all of our fundamental relationships. Just read that second part of Romans 1, and you'll see that. Idolatry is lived, uh, life lived in a topsy-turvy universe that denies and discombobulates God's created order. So we see the consequences of idolatry are grave. We miss our destiny and become like our idols rather than Christ. Idol worship is futile because it never fails to fail us. And it overturns the created order. What God declared is good is now perverted. And one more point. These may be the consequences, but there's also a tragedy to idolatry. When God's people choose to worship idols, here's what we're saying to God. Lord, you're not enough. And think about it. What has God withheld from us? You know, we're the people that live after the cross. And yet, as his people, we still say, Lord, you're not enough. You know, the purpose of this academy is to equip disciples to make disciples. How effective can we really be if we don't believe the Lord is enough? And we can go all the way back to the garden, right? The Lord gave Adam and Eve everything they needed, it was lush, including his presence. And yet they were uh, deceived and seduced into thinking it wasn't enough. You see, the enemy doesn't have a big bag of tricks because the enemy doesn't need a big bag of tricks. The same thing that was going on in the garden is going on today. And again, God's people. Last point on this. Remember we said repetition is used to emphasize what is essential. We're gonna to be together and go through the whole Old Testament story 
all the way through April. Notice as we move through this story how often God, either directly or through his prophets, will warn his people about idolatry. Now, before we move on to Joseph, um, we're going to do journal time twice tonight because I think that this topic is so important for believers. And I'm hoping what we do in this next time of journaling is we're beginning the conversation, prayer time, and thought about how the idols are really uh, taking away what the Lord wants for us. And this might be something we do throughout our walk with the Lord. But you might be in a couple of places or one of three places. You might be like Jacob. Lord, I know my idols and I am ready to get rid of them. Tonight you can declare that. Write it down and get rid of them. Or, remember we said there's the deceptive? So we might have to ask the Holy Spirit, would you reveal to me the idols I'm serving so I can get rid of them? And in this time of the journal, we can be very honest. Lord, I need you to help me get rid of my idols. I can't seem to do this on my own. And that's okay. Remember, Joseph, Jacob started out totally conditionally. God didn't abandon him. It's okay. It may take a while. So let's spend the next seven or eight minutes or so thinking about this topic, thinking about the relational God, and we as the bride want to be faithful to our Lord. Okay, everybody have a chance to really think about that? Okay. It was one thing putting them on the board, wasn't it? It's another thing looking them in the eye, isn't it? So let's see what Joseph can teach us about trusting God. Let's, let's do a little background on Joseph. Joseph was one of 12 brothers, and he happened to be his father's favorite son. The favoritism was such that his brothers wanted to kill him, but they reconsidered, and instead they decided to sell him to the Ishmaelite traders for 20 pieces of silver. Make no mistake about it. Joseph, Joseph suffers betrayal and at the hands of his family. They betray him. The traders took him into Egypt and sold him to Potiphar, who was an official to the Pharaoh. The Lord was with Joseph, and he succeeded in everything he did. And you can bet Potiphar noticed this, and he put Joseph in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. And Joseph was successful. But he was also handsome, and Potiphar's wife wanted to have an affair with him. And he refused her continually. Scripture never says he initiated, instigated, or participated in any way in spite of her persistence. One day when they were alone, she actually grabbed him and demanded they have an affair. But Joseph fled. He did the right thing. But Potiphar's wife lied and told her husband what Joseph had done. That Joseph, she accused him of rape. So what was the outcome? Well, of course Potiphar was furious and Joseph was thrown into jail. Completely innocent, he does the time and never did the crime. So here again, Joseph suffers, this time injustice. He gets the one-two whammy, doesn't he? Betrayal and injustice and he doesn't initiate any of it. But the Lord is still with Joseph and through a series of events, he eventually was brought to the attention of the Pharaoh because Joseph was able to interpret a dream that bothered the ruler. And it was a prophetic interpretation. Joseph warned Pharaoh, a famine is coming. Be prepared. And once again, Joseph rose to great power 
second only to the Pharaoh, who was the ruler of the world power. The famine came, and the only place to go for food was Egypt, and this includes Joseph's family. See, this crisis brought about the family reunion, but this time Joseph had all the power. And we know from our reading, don't we, how he chose to use it. He forgave them, and he offered the care for them and their families. But you know what? I want to know why. I want to know why did he do this, and that's what I think is the important question. I'll tell you why. Recently, I've been in several Bible studies that have stressed the personal benefit of forgiveness. It has a therapeutic value. In other words, forgiveness benefits the forgiver as we release our offender and the situation to God. I don't doubt this. But here's the thing. That's not what Scripture says is going on in this situation, right? No, no. Joseph could forgive them because he trusted God. He knew the Lord was sovereign, and he trusted that God was working out his good purposes, even through Joseph's betrayal and injustice. You know what? Joseph's perspective, it wasn't horizontal. It was vertical. He didn't look out at those that were doing it to him. He looked up to God. And how do I know this? Joseph told us this. In verse 20, as far as I'm concerned, Joseph says, God turned into good what you meant for evil. He brought me to this high position because I have today, that I have today, so I could save the lives of many people. You know, I, I love this verse. And I, as I was reading it, it reminded me of something. Maybe this is familiar to you. Because centuries later, this is what Paul writes. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That's us who have been called according to his purpose. Do you know what this beloved verse looks like in action? Joseph, Joseph's life. He forgave his brothers unconditionally. And what did his forgiveness accomplish? So I can save the lives of many people, including his family, who become the tribes, who become the nation of Israel, from where the Redeemer will come. Joseph is part of the big story he chose to put his trust in God into action. So can we see that more was accomplished here than just a personal therapeutic benefit for Joseph? See that? Now in our story, Joseph also serves as a foreshadow and a type of Christ. He's a foreshadow because he points us to the future, that's for, and shadow of a greater fulfillment to come. And he's a type because he resembles and he behaves like Christ. Let's take a look at the comparison between the two. Joseph. We know Joseph is a favorite son. What does the father say about Jesus? This is my beloved son, and I am fully pleased with him. Well, we saw through Joseph's story, right? He trusted God in all circumstances. Now watch this. After Jesus performs the miracle and feeds 5,000, when the people saw this miracle, they said, surely he's the prophet we have been expecting. We found the Messiah, they're thinking, right? Jesus saw that they were ready to take him by force and make him king. So he went higher into the hills alone. Look at what Jesus does. He walks away from a throne, but he walks towards the cross. How does Jesus do that? Why is he going to fulfill his mission? He trusts God. 
And he knew if he trusted his father, there would be a greater glory. Betrayal. Well, we see that Joseph was betrayed by his family. How about Jesus? Well, at this point in the gospel, several people are angry with him. He has lots of disciples, but the betrayer comes from the inner circle. It comes from one of the 12. We know that Joseph suffered injustice, and look what Jesus did. He went to the cross for us. Remember the first night Pastor talked about the three imputations? Our sin is imputed onto, jo uh, onto Jesus, and he will bear the full wrath of, of God for us. Full of grace, but is it really just? And I love this. Their offenders were ignorant. Because Joseph says, see, you intended harm, but all along God meant this for good. You didn't know. Look what Jesus says. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Where does Jesus say this? On the, on the cross, yes. And what did they accomplish? Well, we saw what Joseph did, right? He saved the lives of many. What about Jesus? He provided the way for all humanity to be saved, whoever believes in him. You see, we get to be his disciple. This is the one in whom we place our trust. And how do we do this? We show this by the decisions we make and the actions we take. We ditch the idols because Jesus is enough, and that's what Jacob did. We adopt a vertical perspective because we trust that God is working out his good purpose regardless of our personal circumstances, the horizontal, right? That's what Joseph did. But I need to tell, need to tell you, you see this? For me, that's not natural. Not at all. See, for number one, I like options. And I like lots of options. And for number two, I have 20-20 vision, but it's horizontal. That's my natural go-to. Is anybody else like that? So how do we do this? Well, I have some great news. We're not on our own. Enter the Holy Spirit. We know he can create life from Genesis. He is the life giver, but he can also recreate life. He has the power to bring life out of death, and that power lives in us. Romans 8.12, Paul writes, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in the believers, lives in us. He is the supernatural power to help us in our natural weakness. And the good news continues. It is God, through the Holy Spirit, who initiates this work of trust in us. For it is God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. Look at God. He's the initiator, right? He initiates creation. He initiates the covenants. He initiates our salvation. He initiates the work in us to trust him. And you know when God initiates? Do you know what disciples do? We respond. And how do we respond? We do this through our devotional life. Time with him in prayer and in his word. Well, in the future, we're going to spend time developing our spiritual lives as part of our academy experience. But for now, I want to issue you a challenge. I want us to say these verses every day starting tomorrow. Are you up for it? Okay. Here's what I think we should do. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, that's us. Now watch this. In view of God's mercy, we can only do 
what Romans 12.1 says, because God is merciful, okay? Now, we're going to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. What, 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 uh, holy? Yes. Remember the imputations pastor talked about? Christ will impute his righteousness on us. This is our spiritual act of worship. So get this. We can worship God because of his great mercy, and he has done the work to make us acceptable. Think about the conversation Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well. They talked about many things, and one of them was worship. They were discussing the proper place to worship God because Jews and Samaritans were at odds over this. They were talking about the physical places. But you know what Jesus said? A time is coming and is already here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for anyone who will worship him that way. I never knew what Jesus was talking about until I got the Romans 12.1. It finally started making sense. Worshiping in spirit means we offer ourselves. What Jesus did literally, we do spiritually. That's what we're talking about. Now let's take a look at verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of, the, of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's what you're doing here at the academy, right? Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. It is good, pleasing, and perfect. Now look at this. By us saying these words, declaring them and meaning them, this puts us in step and in cooperation with the very work the Holy Spirit is doing in us. Right? The Holy Spirit is initiating our ability to know and to do God's will. And we respond by renewing our minds so that we can know and do God's will. I'm suggesting that we say this out loud because you know what happens when you say it out loud? You'll know it. And then personalize it. So maybe it's going to sound like this. Lord, only because of your great mercy, I can offer myself to you. I am wholly and pleasing to you because I'm set apart by your cross. And this is my spiritual act of worship. If we wake up in the morning saying that, you know what we're saying? Idols, be gone. Our worship is in the right place. And I don't want to conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but I want to be transformed by renewing my mind with your word so that I will know and do your will, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. And look at that. We start our day by being in step in cooperation with the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, you are enough, and I trust you. Now, I know we're doing a lot of writing in our journal tonight, but I thought this was kind of a, like a mini workshop. And we covered a lot of material this week. We looked at Jacob. We looked at Joseph. The questions were long. Did you notice that? And we covered a lot here. And when we go to our journal at the end of the night, we're looking at things that impacted us and perhaps our personal takeaway. But I'm wondering tonight if you might consider, was there something from any of this that you can apply to your role as Christ's disciple or our mission? So let's take another eight minutes or so, then we'll get back and we'll wrap up and we'll close in prayer. Well, I want to thank you for being so gracious tonight and uh, allowing me to turn this into a little workshop. But do you realize that as of tonight, we have completed the book of Genesis and two of the six time periods on our uh, chart. We have completed creation in Abraham as of tonight. And you know, um, where are we in the story? 
If, if I were a screenplay writer, I, I think this would be a pretty great place to end a story. Look what's going on here, right? Our family has certainly provided us with plenty of drama, lots of twists and turns. And if that isn't enough, we have an outside crisis too. This is fantastic. We have a famine. And that famine brings about an unplanned family reunion between the betrayed and the betrayers. But the tables have turned, another plot twist, and the betrayed one holds all of the power. However, he doesn't choose vengeance. Rather, our family is reconciled. And they lived happily ever after. The end, right? It's a great place to end it. But the story doesn't end here. Why not? God's not done. That's a great answer. Thank you. Anyone else? What's not fulfilled? Which one? Yes. Yes. Excellent. The covenants are not fulfilled. Thank you. Anything, anything else over here? I heard somebody say somebody's name. Jesus. Well, think about this. This is the redemption story, and who hasn't come yet? The Redeemer, right. Now, what about the Israelites? What about the patriarchs? What do their covenants look like? Are they fulfilled at this point in the story? Because everybody's happy right now. What, what was promised to them? Land. And where are they? Is that, is that the promised land? No. Okay, that's number one. And um, let's see. Does anybody have a Bible and take a look at Genesis 46, 26? We get a little bit of information about what's going on at the end of Genesis. A little bit of information about our family. Does anybody want to read that out loud? Who has a loud voice? Yes. I don't have NIV, though. That doesn't matter. That's okay. Thank you. So what do you think about that number 70? Bingo. There's twice as many of that right here in this room. Exactly. So you have done an awesome job. Every answer had to do with the covenants not being fulfilled. You got it, right? And you are correct. That's why our story continues. So next week, along with the Israelites, we are heading to Sinai. The story continues. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have revealed to us through the lives of Jacob and Joseph. We want to be your disciples, Lord. For Father, you are enough for us, and we trust you because you know what? You know what you're doing. And I pray this blessing over everyone here and their families. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.